Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 86. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. I forgot to mention last episode 85, we passed the sort of year of my birth, if that's helpful. So we're 1985, now we're into 1986, one year into my life. Liam, you've got to stop reminding us how young you are. <laughs> I just thought I'd, I just thought I'd throw that in, Lisa. I feel very, very old. I know. Do they even let people who are in their 80s work? Much less work looking after children? God, we must be well, close the thing is, Lisa, that by the time Liam was born, we'd already saved house deposits. So, <laughs> uh, and as we know, that's never a possibility these days. So, that's right. Now I just get to blame you, baby boomers, for everything yeah. that's wrong. Yeah, yep. won't be the first time. This has all worked out well. All right, we've got a, um, a good uh, topic lined up tonight. We're going to be talking one of the most, I think, exciting topics in early education, which is developing and reviewing policies. Now, stay with us. We promise this is going to be a fun chat. Uh, I, I Look, I am a bit of a weirdo. I do find policies uh, exciting and interesting, but um, I'm looking forward to hearing why we, for particularly from Leanne and Lisa, who are both policy development experts, uh, why this is uh, particularly important. But we've got to do... Just a few uh, announcements, housekeeping things before then. Um, as we approach the end of the year, regular listeners to the podcast, uh, God bless you if you're still around. Uh, at the end of each year, we do a sort of wrap-up uh, year in review episode, which includes a Q&A component. Um, so we're launching that again as of this episode. You'll find a link in the podcast notes on the website, a link to a form where you can submit your questions, and we'll try and make sure we answer them on that episode. That kind of comes out um, you know, just before the, the end of the year. So... Uh, click the link, send us a question, make it as crazy as possible. But not too hard because we're not really bright people. Well, Lisa, you, you can answer Doctor Who related ones this year, which is the Ooh, first year. Yes. That's well, exciting. As long as uh, I've only watched a little bit of two series, so it's got to be focused on those two series. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, we'll... And, and we could even have bachelorette questions as well because oh. I've been keeping up my viewing pleasure. Or we can slit our wrists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's literally watching that in the other room as we record this on Wednesday night. Cut out someone publicly for having such bad viewing. <laughs> I think she's it's happy. Highbrow. I can't believe that you just think of it as as very poor television. She's in good company with Leanne, at least. Beautifully constructed. <laughs> um. <laughs> The other kind of two show updates, um, I've, I, I logged onto the website and realised it had been a very long time since I've updated the listening guide, which sort of provides a bit of a, a breakdown of all our episodes. I finally got on and updated that. So uh, if you if you go on to uh, earlyeducationshow.com and click on listening guide, you can see a bit of a, a rundown of all our episodes by category. It's a really great thing to send to colleagues if they haven't heard the show before and they're going, oh my God, they've done 86 episodes, Where do I have to start from the start? Um, no, you could do that. You could... You could listen to 86 episodes, you know, back to back. I, I don't know what that would do to your mental health. But you can pick a topic and if there's a particular thing you're interested in, you can find that now on the listening guide and I, will, I promise I will do a better job of keeping that updated um, each and every week. Maybe we should look at the listening guide to make sure we're not repeating ourselves. Maybe. I, that, that, well, that kind of was originally why I set it up. But then I just gave up and figured we'd probably just have new things to add to topics anyway. By the time we get to episode, you know, 150, we'll just have to circle back to episode one and just redo them all. <laughs> so look, look forward to that, everyone. You just might need to edit out 
like where there's a politician's name, you can just insert another one because yeah. they'll still be doing the same things. That's right. I hope you didn't refer to any prime ministers to specifically in some of those early episodes. Mm. Um, <laughs> Actually, that's how we could save ourselves um, time and effort is just refer to people as minister or prime minister or, true. you know, not, not actually name those people. Yeah, if we just said that annoying politician, that's that's uh, that could work for yeah, that you know, could the next few years. That covers everything. <laughs> or we could do a whole episode that's got nothing in it called "Politicians Who Care." <laughs> oh, that was a big no. There are some a blank one. A blank one. <laughs> that was five no, minutes of silence. Some. There, there are, are a few good ones out there. But we could do a whole episode on those that don't. But anyway, let's not go there. Let's be positive. Let's be positive. Um, and then the, the last update, we're now on the second week of uh, a supporter exclusive show exploring the NQS. So this show is available for people who support us on Patreon, for which we're incredibly grateful for. Uh, so we've got uh, Element 1.1.2 Child Centred is out now. So two down, 38 to go. So I'll be looking at each of the elements of the National Quality Standard once a week. Yeah, so stuff, Liam. It's, it's great. They're very enjoyable to do, and I hope they're you know, mm. potentially useful to, to a few people out there. Um, yeah. But you can... I'll have to listen to one. Yes. Well, are you supporting us on Patreon, Lisa? <laughs> Where's your hand over the cash and we'll talk? Oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, well, this is okay. awkward. So awkward. I don't get access like Awkward. Awkward. <laughs> All right. So, um, if you can find out, uh, if you head to patreon.com forward slash early edgy show, uh, you can get access to those episodes. And thank you very much for your support. But uh, we'll take a quick break and then be back with our main topic of discussion for the night. So, stay with us. All right. Welcome back. So, the, the, Topic of the, the, the thrust of this uh, week, we're going to be looking at um, policies and procedures in early education service. We've spent a lot of time on the show talking about government policy. We're going to bring that right down to the service level now and look at you know the policies and procedures that early education services engage with on a day-to-day basis. You'll probably you know find them in a big white folder somewhere on your shelf that you have to occasionally refer to. Um, now, I think there's a couple of things I, you know I, we want to start with before I get started. I've got to say um, I suggested this because I know that both Lisa and Leanne have had long you know, histories uh, of, of really spending a lot of time on policies and procedures. Um, I've I've utilised both of their work previously in developing and reviewing policies at my own service. So this Aww. is, yeah, you know, absolutely. This is, so this is largely a learning experience for me as well. So I'm sort of going to be yeah. guiding the discussion by looking forward to hearing from Lisa and Leanne. Um, I think the other thing we want to make clear is I think policies and procedures have a reputation as being a bit boring and not very fun and uh, I think we're going to challenge never. that. Never. I'm never boring. Exactly. I love them. We're going to challenge that a bit tonight, but I think we also want to make sure there's kind of the, the, this episode should work, um, you know, whether you're in a leadership role and maybe actually responsible for um, reviewing or developing policies and procedures, but even if you're not, um, I, th- I think we would all agree. I think it's still incredibly good to have an understanding of policies, even if you're not responsible for writing, for writing and reviewing them if you're just part of you know a service that engages with them um so i think we hope you know the hope is that this episode will work on both of those levels both people doing doing policies and people using policies i think that's the kind of that's the way we're going to approach it right hmm. all right yeah, that, sounds, that sounds awesome so let's start with the big question first so let's say you know there are some crazy people out there who for some reason think that policies might be a tad boring a tad dull not the most exciting topic in the sector. I can't imagine that, but apparently those people might be out there. So I'm going to go, Leanne, you know, convince me otherwise. Why Why should we care about policies in centres? Well, I think policies are very, very useful in making, just giving clarity 
I think that's probably the the big thing that I, I would consider policies useful for. They give that clarity to families. They give it to staff. They give it to um, the leadership of the, the setting as well. It's always something that everybody can go back to. And it actually is the um, process through which you implement your philosophy as well. So if you have great policies you can um, that have got a foundation in the philosophy, then your philosophy kind of comes through in the procedural elements. And I think it just, for, for me, policies, as you know, loving them as much as I do, I think it just helps with all of those things like conflict resolution, upholding professional practice, um, good decision-making as well that's consistent and dependable. And most of all, I think it offers protection for children and for families and for educators as well. So they're, they're my reasons why I think policy is very, very useful. I like that. Lisa, do you have anything you sort of wanted to add to that question about that big summary question? Why, why should we be engaged in this topic? Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, I think that policies are pretty boring. You know, I write a lot of them. That's how I make a lot of my income is writing policies for people. And is it one of my most favourite things to do? No, it's not. And is it any of, you know, the services that I work with when they try and write it, is it their favourite thing to do? I'd say no, probably not. But what it gives people is some space where they don't have to think about things. I always, I'll draw an analogy I believe in social justice. I believe in you know, a left-wing kind of view of the world, just in case you'd never picked that up before. Um, and because of that, when something new comes up, I don't have to always think it through from scratch. I can just go, is, this, is there a loser in this? And if there's a loser in it, then it's probably not going to, to get my tick of approval. Is this a socially just, you know, thing that someone's suggesting? If it isn't, it's not going to get my approval. And that makes life a lot easier because I don't have to think through everything, everything, you know, time and time again. And it's the same with policies. If you have pre-thought what you are going to do if you have an emergency evacuation, for example, then when it happens, you don't have to think about it. You've already pre-thought it. And you go, yeah, well, we do evacuation procedures all the time, yeah. Yes, but you do them because it's part of your policy and because it's a regulation as well. But in thinking through everything that might happen at that stage and ensuring that, you know, uh, as a director, as a committee, as a staff, that you all understand what the processes are, then it kind of just clicks in automatically when it happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I like, I like that idea that they're, they're, they're reflections of, of thought about particular things that are important to the service. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is what you were saying, Leanne, which is that, you know, they're, they're, in bed, they're, they're kind of reflections of the philosophy of the centre. Yeah, and I just think that they make things clear for people because you, you have people coming to either work in the centre or um, be, be fam, you know, be families using the service and, and children using the service. And, and everybody's going to come from different experiences and a different understanding of what is going to happen in that centre. And I think it just provides a very 
helpful support for communication about what will happen and what the policies of of the setting are so that so that people can understand where they stand within that yeah wonderful well lisa i might turn it to you so if we're starting from a perspective of you know maybe we have a suite of policies maybe we're a new service that that's opening what are the approaches people can 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 i guess take you know should they be looking at other policies should they just be staring at a blank piece of paper where's your stuff you know for you what are the what are the different approaches you can take for policies Look, I always say to services, there's a good way to do policies and there's a bad way to do policies. And the good way is that the service all organically, you know, comes up with the policies as a way that reflects what they believe in and that, you know, where management committees or owners and staff and families sit around and families read all the policies policies and provide feedback. And... That's the good way. The bad way is to get someone else to write them for you. But you know what? Most people actually, you know, find that the bad way works best. So how I work with services when I write policies for them is I say, give me your policies. And regularly they'll give me like, you know, 50 policies. And the first thing I say is, let's cut these down to about 20 or 30, shall we? Um and then from there, I have base policies that I always work with, and then I adapt them to their situation, like their service type, their particular situation, their philosophy. And then what I do is I give them back to them, and then they go through that process of taking it back with the, their committee and their um, and their staff and... Um, with with their uh, families as well. And someone said to me this week, I know you told me that this was the bad way to do it, the way we're doing it, but it's actually worked a lot better because if we gave them policies that were in the state that our old policies were, nobody would have given in any feedback. But because the new policies are readable and short, because that's what I like to pride myself on, making readable and short policies everybody was able to go through and have an opinion and the staff had really strong opinions about certain procedures, etc. and we're changing those aspects of the policies. So at the end of that, I thought, well, maybe it isn't such a bad way to do it. Maybe, you know, getting a policy writer in is actually a, a reasonable way of doing it as long as they take into account your situation and your philosophy. Okay, so that's so you. I'm interested there, Lisa. You've got that. You you have some sort of base policies. You start from. Are you like? Have you got a, a, a story or an example of you know where someone's taken, you know, a, a starting point and gone in a really interesting direction of them? Is is, it, is there a good policy development story out there? Um, I don't think I've got a really good one that I can just go on I'll give you I'll give you a, a, an example of one that I'm dealing with at the moment though um, I'm having to do a child protection policy for a service yeah and child protection at least in New South Wales is really complex to begin with nobody has actually ever defined what the regulation 168 policy about child safety actually means is it just child protection or is it 
chemical safety, etc. as well. And I've never been able to get a clear answer from either the New South Wales regulator or from a CEQA as to what that part of the regulation means. So I always approach child protection policies with, oh, this is going to be so horrible. And the service gave me their existing child protection policy and it was pages and pages of just really dense material because um, in New South Wales we have to both you know, report reportable conduct to the the department that looks after um, children's health and wellbeing docs, but also as an agency, if it's happened inside an agency, like inside a service, it's got to be reported to the ombudsman's department, which is a whole other department. So there's just legislation piles and, you know, acres high on which you've got to do it. And I was really struggling as to how to make this a simple policy. And so I went to someone who will remain nameless, but I know that she's a regular listener to this podcast, so hi. And I said, look, I know you understand child protection really well. I know that you'll have the perfect policy. Can I please borrow it? And she said, yep, just give me a minute to find it. She sent it to me and it was 58 pages. And she said, I'd be interested in your feedback on it. And I said, no one can follow a 58-page policy. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> it's impossible, yeah? And so through the process of doing it, I'll come up with a policy that's a lot shorter and then it will have some specific procedures behind it for, you know, if the child protection issue is, you know, happens in your service, if it happens outside of your service in a family, if, um, you know, if you're looking at child safety, this is what you do. But just try and really make the policy side of it, which is, look, you know, in, in essence, a, a child protection policy is our education and care service wants to protect children from harm of all sorts. Yeah, that's that's what your policy is, isn't it? Does uh, yeah, yeah, like no, I think it's I think um, it's I think it's always good to talk about that stuff in practice. And I just want to say, I think you mentioned um, at the start there, Lisa, the regulation one six eight policies. Um, and for people who aren't familiar, uh, regulation one six eight is um, part of the Education and Care Services National Regulations. These are the mandated policies uh, that have to be in place in every single service. There's about uh, 21, 21 of them, depending on how you sort of define the, the sub points, but um, they include things uh, like uh, incident injury, trauma and illness procedures, sleep and rest administration of a first aid. But um, these are the ones, you know, the government has said you sort of have to have as a starting point and all the others are built on there. Um, so, you know, would we, I think we'd, we'd say, obviously, are they ones that you particularly focus on, um, Leanne, when you think about policies as someone who's, you know, who's uh, led an early childhood service organisation? I just think if you get the prescribed policies out of the way, then, <laughs> then you can do compliant. the fun ones. <laughs> well, I think, you, you, first of all, you want to be compliant. And the reason that those other prescribed policies is because they're deemed to, to be the most important ones. And I think this is where we look to regulation to, to lean on it and say, okay, they must be the important ones, so we'll, we'll get those ones out of the way. And I think that they do, um, you know, that they do work with those issues around governance and management and um, the, the things that are probably the most critical in terms of running a service. But I think there are a lot of other policies that you will want to think about 
that relates specifically to your service. And I think about how policies have changed over time. And it's interesting with that 68-page one on child protection, Lisa, because I think what happens is that we start out with a policy that has to be newly developed. And because we don't understand our practice in those areas, we tend to have very long policies because we've got to break down every single aspect of that practice. But as we become more familiar with, um, you know, something like child protection, which most people will have a good understanding of having done their their basic training in that, um, or even something like I think about, a, you know, a policy that relates to anaphylaxis. Now, there was actually a time where there wasn't a, an element of your health and safety policy that was... Um, relating to anaphylaxis, Liam, you will not remember a time like that <laughs> because there has always been that in existence. But I, I think about this in a um, – I was on a management committee and a family approached the service saying, look, you know, this is, a, this is an issue that we have with our child, a rather dangerous issue. We had to go through the whole process of trying to share that with families and understanding it. So I would have to say that there was a specific policy – on anaphylaxis that was about 20 pages long because people didn't understand um, what was what the issues were, what the risks were, how people had to respond to those risks. But now I think we'd find a policy like that or an element of a health and safety policy as being much having much more clarity and being much shorter because people understand more now what they have to do in those areas. And so I think sometimes when a new policy is being developed that's an unfamiliar area of practice or it might be something new that we've raised and think we need to have a policy around, it's going to be much, much longer to start with, but then it becomes more concise. So how, lo how long is a child protection policy ideally now, Lisa? Well, I don't know. I haven't, I'm yet to find the perfect child protection policy. That's my job for Friday, to write oh, it. <laughs> find the most perfect one but it is certainly <laughs> it's certainly not 68 pages long so I, I, I think actually sorry Leanne, i think you've hit on a really one of the key issues for me with, with when we sort of discuss policies and procedures so i think the it's real, and I, I appreciate it, it's it's really hard to sort of discuss policies in the broad context you kind of want to get down into specific ones because they each have individual requirements but i think one of the things you were talking about there is this kind of balance or or the two alternate ends of the spectrum which is detail versus usability so the instinct is particularly for something you know a serious anaphylaxis or child protection is you want to include or you want to cover all your bases you want to get as much stuff in there as possible and people are and that's potentially people are coming that from a risk perspective so they don't want to you know they don't want an incident to happen they want to kind of demonstrate that they've covered it but that can come at the cost of you know it actually being usable by 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 you know an educator working in the service so um I'm desperately trying to claw my way to a question here, but I, you know, do you have a, you know, what's the what's the guidance around sort of bridging that gap? How you know, is there are there are there some key? I know, look, I said I know it's hard when you when you're talking in in, in big big picture, not about specific policies, but you know, are there principles you think can can sort of drag it from you know, you know, at, at an extreme end, you know, a fifty page policy down to a readable one? But what are those principles around something that's um, the right length that it's usable, but also includes you know levels of detail and, and risk mitigation that people will be comfortable with. Are you asking me that, Liam? I'm asking you that, Leanne. 
Okay. <laughs> it was buried. Um, I, yeah, I asked you. I asked you about um, twenty-five minutes ago, Leanne, at the start of that sentence. So okay. I'm not surprised. I, but in actual fact, I think that is an excellent question, and it wasn't. And it wasn't even on our run sheet. Um, the, the reason why I think it's an excellent question is it's how it's how much pain will people bear? And I think that there there is. You know, as this is probably something Lisa and I definitely agree on: is that policies should be only as long as people are prepared to read, and that that could be very short. And I don't think a policy can do everything. I think that the bridge between policy and practice is actually really good professional development, and and good training. Um, that you know, good um, qualifications and training, because whichever way you go about it, even if you are um, using that policy and it is so specific, you still need to do some uh, critical or analytical thinking to apply that policy. So to me, there's this bridge between that policy and, and really good practices, the PD, the critical thinking that goes in between and people actually being, um, you know, that the risks are mitigated in that policy but it's only as long as people are ready to sit down and read that policy or take it on or be trained in it. I How I kind of approach it when I do it is I start off with a statement at the beginning of each policy of why do we have this policy? And like in you know, one of the answers may well be because it, we need to have it under Regulation 168. But I just talk about our understanding of that area, you know, what do we understand about anaphylaxis? We understand that more more children are coming to our services having it um, and that there's a risk of a death of a child in our service through anaphylaxis. So that's why we've got the policy. And I think that's one of the reasons people give me quite a lot of positive feedback about my policies because it straight away says, you know, this is why we have it. And then, um, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I I, I'm sorry for laughing in the middle of this. There's some note um, <laughs> writing by some of my podcast colleagues here that's interesting. Leanne's saying, I swear I taught Lisa that, <laughs> um, which she probably did. <laughs> um because Leanne's actually written a book on how to write policies for education and care services, so I'm sure everything I know I learnt from her. But the other thing that I do Can we put that is... up in the, in the notes too, please, Liam, because I still get I still get a dollar twenty every six months for the sales on that book. I just I'll just make that the title of the episode if you like, Leanne. <laughs> um, but the other thing I do is just to have this is what we're trying to do. How do we do it? And so there's about five sections, you know. Um, this is what we, uh, you know, we're trying to not kill a child while they're at childcare through anaphylaxis. And then I'll have, we do this by, um, you know, how, uh, by not having products in the centre that might kill them, by having good processes um, around what we do when a child has come in contact with a contaminant, by understanding from the parents exactly what children are, you know, um, allergic to, by understanding the best way to treat anaphylaxis. 
And so then it's like not this mountain of material that you've got to read. It's actually, you know, just four or five points about how we're trying to do that main thing of not killing a child, which I, you know, I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing for a child care centre, for an education care centre to do, to not kill children. Don't you? Very worthy. Very worthy. Good addition to your quality improvement plan for sure. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, wonderful. So I think, look, we've, uh, and I did, my, my apologies to both of you, we did go a bit off topic from our, from our running sheet prep, but I think we've kind of, in broad terms, talked about uh, developing new policies. So let's look at, you know, often the next stage or, or one of the stages of that process, which is reviewing existing policies. Um, you know, Lisa, I might, you know, turn to you. What's, you know, what are, the, what are some key principles for you as you sort of have a policy in front of you that maybe doesn't need a complete rewrite, but you've come up to that review point? What are the you know, what are the key things you think about when, when reviewing existing policies? Look, one of the scariest bits to me is about legislative change and changes of our source materials. So say, you know, the ones that are always take the longest to write are, is the infectious diseases policy. Because oh, that's a nightmare. Yeah, what, a nightmare. what we all knew about infectious diseases in nineteen, you know, say in two thousand and fifteen, when we last wrote our policy on it, is probably totally different in two thousand and eighteen. I think that's a great example. And sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. And no, and, interrupt. Um, but. But I think, you know, something like infectious diseases is such a great example because how many of the diseases now that that are around or the infectious, you know, something that's infectious that was notifiable to the health department X number of years ago is just, it's just par for the course now. You know, you don't need to notify the health department of something that has become just a common um, infectious disease that we understand better. So to me, like, that's a, a beautiful example, but it's why um, you need to be constantly reviewing because things change so rapidly. Sorry, back to you. But it, but that's, and because things change so rapidly, it's really, really hard for directors or managers of services that only are dealing with this material, you know, on a policy cycle of once every two or three years to even know where to start. And then government departments make it incredibly difficult, you know, like by having contradictory information on them. I've been speaking to two different public affairs, public health units about infectious diseases and about, um, uh, I can't even remember what the disease is now, some specific disease that they had two totally contradictory, you know, policies on their website. And finally, the public health unit said, you need to contact the Department of Health about that. And I went, hang on, I don't know whether you realise this, but you are the Department of you're part of the Department of Health. And what they meant was, no, we're a public health unit, we're off here, you need to go to the main Department of Health about that. And it's kind of like, guys, I understand how bureaucracy works, I know what you're talking about, but if I was a director, I'd maybe totally you know, gobsmacked by what you're telling me, you know. How do we find that source material? How do we find the accurate source material? And things disappear from government websites all the time. At the moment, two of the best things that I use as source material for policies is 
the Department of Education's guide to, you know, anaphylaxis in education and care centres. Do you know what? The Department of Education no longer has that on their website. Why is it out of date? No, no, it's not out of date. They changed their website and the it got lost in the process. Oh, no. The other one is exclusion, a poster about exclusion periods from infectious diseases. It's no longer on the NHMRC website. Why? Because they changed the setup of the website and forgot to put it back on. Now, I can follow things like that and know that those things exist and find them in other places or, you know, the other day I was about to upload one of them to my own website just so I could put a link on it because I, I, I wanted people to have access to it. But that kind of, you know, like it's heavy research to find out it's, those it's things. It's time-consuming. It's so time-consuming yeah. to do that stuff, isn't it? And if you're spending two days tracking down, you know, one resource for one policy, then when are you doing the rest of your job as a director or manager or, you know, owner of a service? Mm. Yes. That's well, that's why it's, yeah, I think that's that sort of speaks to your point about um, adapting policies and, and rather than, you know, creating from scratch, which yeah. once upon a time I would have said, you need to create them from scratch, but I've changed my view of that. Oh, phew, so I don't need to feel guilty every time I write someone's policies for them? Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Depends on how much you're being paid. <laughs> so for listeners out there, one of the, I think one of the most common processes of review that they might be familiar with is kind of the common one, and I probably have been guilty of this as before, which is, you know, you have a scheduled thing of review, the policy gets whacked on the staff table in the staff room or something, and people go, please comment on this policy. Would we say that's the most effective way of doing policy reviews, or is there a better way to do it? I think focusing... I hope you're going to ask me this, Liam. Are you going to ask me this? <laughs> I'm going to go with... Eeny, meeny, miny, is that the best way we can be reviewing policies in centres? Well, the reason why I love this question is because this is, I always use a couple of different examples that people go, oh my God, I did not realise I could do that. Because I think that the thing of giving out policies and saying, take a look, or um, and can you just write some feedback, doing that with families, you may as well forget that because there's not time to do that. And as, you know, I remember that someone would ask me, as a parent to review a policy in a childcare centre and I'd be thinking, oh, God, I, just, I know I feel like morally obligated to do something here but I just don't have the space to do it, you know, the space in my head to do it with, you know, all my children around and doing all those things. So I always say that the way that you consult with families for a start on policy is that you have a conversation with them about an aspect of that policy to gauge their, um, to gauge some feedback from that. I don't, I don't believe that you need to um, be just sort of giving people things and getting them. You may as well forget that because people will not write anything back unless they have a passion or an interest and therefore you target them. You know, if you have someone who's really interested in that, then t target them for sure. Same with your staff. But my feeling is that you ask them about things that are critical within that policy, you have a conversation and then you just log that in your head and make sure that that's, that's considered within the policy. And the same with the with the um, staff. I think you target particular... Oh, is our time up? Um, you target particular people um, 
who have an interest in a policy and you then ask them to provide feedback or you have a conversation with them. I think there are other ways to consult apart from handing a policy and asking people to write something on it. And we're always a bit shocked yeah. when that's when we get, oh, no, no one's, no one's given us any feedback on the policies. We're always a bit shocked yeah. when that happens. Yeah, I just think there's no point. I, to me, it's better to have a quick five-minute conversation about a part of that policy that is critical that you're not sure about or that you want to, that you really think, okay, this might be something a bit challenging for families. Um, who can I have a conversation with in, in the hallway? I know it's hard to have those conversations, but if you want to do anything meaningful around this, then you do, you, you just have that conversation or you listen to what is going on in the general conversations that that you're having or that your staff are having um, with each other and with families because that informs your policy and that informs your policy um, review or consultation. It doesn't have to be about that piece of paper because you're doing that, that reflection all the time and you're doing that analysis all the time as an educator or as a, a um, director or leader within the centre. So that, to me, that's a much better way to listen and understand people's reaction to possible reaction to a policy or real reaction to a policy. Wonderful. So great advice. Lisa, did you have any suggestions as well? Yeah, I think it's slightly different for staff. I think that's great for families. For staff, I think they do have to actually read the words on the page. And I like to kind of shorten the process. So you give them, you know, like... If you're looking at the 21 key policies, you say, okay, we're going to look at these three this week, um, you know, and, um, uh, and email it all to them because I, don't, I hate printing out, you know, wads of paper. Email it all to them to say, have a quick look. If there's anything that strikes you as problematic, let me know, you know, from the point of view of a director. And often people will come back with that. And then you say, okay, now as well as looking at what's on there and what might be problematic, you also need to look at what isn't there. Because people, are, it's very easy for anyone to be critical of what is on a page, but they forget about thinking about what might not be on that page. And then suddenly you get into a situation and you go, oh, my God, we don't actually, that's not in the policy, is it? Yeah, like we've got no way of, you know, knowing what we should do when this happens because it's not in the policy. Yeah, and I think that there are some people who have an interest in um, in particular policies. You, you know, there, there'll be, there will be someone in the centre. I agree, everybody has to read those policies and understand them. I just think that when we're sort of consulting or reviewing them, that, that isn't always the case that everybody will read everything. But I, I yeah. do think that, that some... Some people are very interested in, for example, infectious diseases. And 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 it's amazing what different people are interested in, you know. Like your different staff members have really different interests and you go, oh, I never knew that about them. There's Hmm, some strange people out there. Some people are interested in folk festivals and things. Some people are interested in Doctor Who and bike rides through the Himalayan Alps (laughs) or French Alps. It takes, <laughs> it takes all kinds. It takes all kinds to make a world. Yeah, but it does. But I, I, but I, I agree, and it just kind of shows that diversity. We are obviously talking about ourselves here, but I think yeah. it does show that 
that difference and that people will become obsessed with different things. And then there's a sense of ownership of those policies at that point as well. If somebody is if somebody is interested in that and they have something, for example, I could imagine a number of people being really interested in the interactions with children prescribed policy and want to have some influence on that and then feel a great sense of ownership and pride in, in that, having an influence on that because it is so important in our relationships with children. Yeah, you've just got to be careful of the ones whose favourite thing is the sun protection policy. <laughs> um, yeah, who or, or yeah, the infection control, and then they become Nazis around, you know, <laughs> making sure that everybody has a hat on 24-7 and their pans are washed. The, when you follow, I always die when I put this into a policy, but when you follow what um, staying healthy in childcare and, you know, the latest infection control things say about washing children's hands, you would be on a practical level washing every child's hands 15 times a day. And I always put it into policies and I'm always glad when people come back and say, we can't do this because, of course, it's particularly, you know, it's undoable. But at the same time, I always feel like I've got to show, I've got to give them the right, you know, the the correct thing of this is when you're trying to break this infection, you know, the point that infection might get in. And they'll go, yeah, but if we had to wash them, before and after the sandpit, before and after Play-Doh, before and after each meal, before and after each toileting, before and after each time they cough or scratch their head. You know, we would just be doing it constantly. Mm, mm. Not not to mention the, the lack of, of building resilience and... <laughs> and uh, no. no, we it, must kill germs at all times. It's yeah. something that I'm, I'm curious about, and I don't know whether this has become any sort of practice I haven't observed it in any setting but I, you know if I was doing this I, I reckon I would do this a set of policies written by the children I know we have policies that um, you know like we'll have children involved in setting some boundaries and things like that but how cool would it be a policy book written by the children I think it would be um, a lot less regulatory base. I know. It would, it would be fun. It would be fun. And wouldn't it be – what I think would be interesting is who, who would be really wanting to break down some of those procedures in, in your group of children and who would be saying, hey, you know, let's let's have some broader boundaries here. I just I think it would be a really I'll, I'll tell you who, wants, who will want to break it down. It'll be the child that when they grow up, they want to be a bureaucrat in the federal government. <laughs> that child will want to have step-by-step <laughs> procedures for everything. But is this? But is it, is it? They they will, and that and that will be. Of course, we will be deciding what children are going to be as soon as they're born. Soon, so um, you know, and getting them into the right, articulating them into the right sort of uh, setting but what one thing I think being quite uh, realistic about something like that is that it's the opportunity also to uh, support children in understanding their rights and their you know their, their own rights because I your basic foundation for any policy is looking at the you know um, the convention on the rights of the child. And so is this an opportunity to share that with children and then 
and then think about, you know, founding your policies on, on those things. Because I think if you've got a good understanding about the Convention on the Rights of the Child, your policies can be a whole lot smaller. <laughs> well, I think we can say we've sort of looked at the development of policies, we've sort of looked at the review of policies, and we're pretty amazing in about 45 minutes. We've sort of, you know, solved every single issue in both of those. So um, I think what we want to look at now, just as we begin to wrap up, is that idea of, uh, you know, making the, making policies living documents, making them actually useful, making them people actually, I guess, enjoy, you know, the, the having them in their space and actually finding them useful. Are there, you know, I might start with you, Leander, the particular, you know, principles or particular guidance you give to service about making these policies living documents, something that are actually, you know, picked up and read by by educators. Um, okay, maybe can I say four things, very short things. Yes, make I'm going them, to allow this. Make them very readable. Make them very concise. Make them pretty and make them available. Oh, my God. Leanne, you've just said something that I've agreed with every single word. <laughs> That's brilliant. You should write a book, oh, Leanne. Hang on. What can I think of? I want to think of something that you don't agree with. <laughs> make them 180 pages long each. <laughs> no, I didn't say Yeah, I'll just say, you know, like... pay for them to be designed if you can afford it because if good design aids understanding of, you know, reading um, of a document, it it makes it more readable, get it written by someone who can write, who can cut out the 24 words. I once had a, a, a client that said our board doesn't like the word insure. What? Yeah, you know, like I use insure throughout every policy, you know. The board must insure. And they said, no, we can't insure nothing. And I went, Jesus. And then I had to go, go through and cut out the word insure in every policy I developed for them. And it was the best thing I'd ever done because it forced me to look at how many other stupid words were in those policies that didn't actually mean anything. And yeah, so, I've got a, I've got a personal bias against the word stakeholders. Oh, yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Key or otherwise. <laughs> yes. Is there any kind of stakeholder that isn't key though? <laughs> I don't know. I just always think of people standing with stakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. Think, oh, if we've got to talk about stakeholders in education and care, then what are we on about? You know, surely our stakeholders are children and families and educators and teachers and, you know, okay, if you've got to throw in a government department or two as well, but it's fairly obvious who the <laughs> stakeholders are. Well, I'm pretty sure our external stakeholders have very much enjoyed this episode. I might give our internal stakeholders, uh, Lisa and Leanne, you know, is there anything else you feel we haven't covered in this policy development and review spectacular? No. I, but I, I, well, yes, I would just say as a final point that I think you you get a structure that works for you and just use it over and over and over again. Don't worry about changing that because that's how people can unpack those policies and read them and understand them and enjoy policy development because it's a wonderful, wonderful activity. And I'd just say if anyone's got a very good short child protection policy, they can find me at. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
allowing that, Liam? Are we allowing yeah. that? <laughs> We're allowed. I think, do you know what? Well, the, key, you know what the problem is. Le- Leanne, we have to allow. We have no policies around it as a, as a, as a show. <laughs> Goodness, we've done pretty well without a policy for 85 episodes, haven't we? Not even a code of conduct. Mm-hmm. I no think wrong. we have a philosophy, which is be nice and be, but try and be helpful. Yeah, and we're critical reflectors, so I think we can reflect as yeah. well. And no yeah. swearing. And we, and we understand human rights. And no swearing, because I have to figure it out. Yeah, and we're right. definitely um, gender unbiased. Mm. That's true. Mm. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you both for, for taking us through that. I think I, I learnt quite a lot, and I'm going to go back and uh, have a look at all of our policies uh, when I when I turn back up at Northside. But um, we'll be back in your audio feeds, back on your website, back in your headphones next week with another new episode. But until then, it's goodbye from me and from me and from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.